And internal controls are not simply due diligence, distributors, et cetera. It goes down to your payment schemes and how you pay your vendors should all be a part of your internal controls. Global companies face unprecedented risks and challenges in today's economy. To mitigate these legal and economic risks, companies are rapidly embracing and elevating the importance of robust ethics and compliance programs to promote positive corporate citizenship. On Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, you'll hear from industry leaders and insiders about how to create effective ethics and compliance programs that will mitigate risks and maximize financial performance. Here's your host, Michael Volkov. Well, hello, everyone. Happy New Year to everybody. We had a great holiday, and I always like to bring in the new year with my good friend, colleague, esteemed practitioner in the legal area, my good friend, Tom Fox. Tom, thanks for joining me today for a discussion of last year, but everybody looks forward to your views, your perspective here. So thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Mike. And Tom, I think we were going to look back on 2022 and the FCPA, sort of enforcement and compliance issues. And just to tee it up a little bit, I always like to do this review. I think it's good to sort of have a good measure. And I think you and I have recorded several of these over the years during, you know, at year end. But I wanted to just start first with a little bit of, you know, some high level observations from each of us. And then we can go on to maybe talk about some of the cases and then some of the compliance enforcement policy changes that came about this year. In general, I thought this was a really interesting year. Lots of changes, which we'll talk about from the enforcement standpoint. But I do think this was a year where sort of the administration put in place its policies, its approach to how it's going to handle these cases, as well as other white collar issues. And now they're starting to, you know, roll cases out. And we had sort of a big finish here at the end with ABB settlement and the Honeywell settlement. But in general, the numbers are a little bit higher this year, Tom, than last year, in that we have DOJ brought corporate enforcement actions or settlements involving five defendants, five companies. The SEC and the CFTC had eight, so they had three other cases where they acted alone. We also had two declinations, that being Saffron, which happened at the end of the year with disgorgement and Jardine Lloyd. And we saw two cases in which we had the appointment of corporate monitors. That was Glencore and Stericycle. And then we had two cases where we had corporate monitors extended for a year, that being Ericsson and Mobile Telesystems, the Russian company that had its corporate monitorship extended. One other point I thought is we continue to see a lot of criminal prosecutions of individuals. And I think, if anything, when we get to talk about the corporate enforcement policy changes, a lot of that is directed at increasing those numbers. And this year we had 24, and last year we had about 26 or so. I think that number will probably go up. But, you know, we've never had another as big a year as the year with Goldman Sachs in Malaysia. And that to me is just a big, big year. But this, I think, was still an interesting year. Those were my thoughts. What was your sort of thought as we closed out the year and looked to, to this year, Tom? Mike, you're right. We did not see the paucity of cases we've seen in the last couple of years, but I would say it was a relatively slow couple of years 
based on what we saw sort of 2012 to 2016. We saw 1.3, almost 1.4 billion in fines and penalties collected. We had some interesting cases really from the compliance professional perspective. And one of the things that I want to shout out to the DOJ on this podcast, Mike, is I think they're getting much better in communicating to the greater compliance community through the resolution documents, whether they be a DPA, MPA, occasionally a declination, whether it's the information of what they looked at to assess the case in front of them, but also in a way that allows the compliance professional to look at that and glean not only what the DOJ is thinking and how they may approach things, but I think some real action items that you can use to benchmark your own compliance program. So because of those last points, I thought this year was very interesting with some cases literally over $1.1 billion to Glencore down to $6.3 million to KT Corp. But both of those cases had numerous points that a uh, compliance professional can study and should utilize in their compliance programs going forward. Typically, we don't see the extensions of monitorships or settlement documents. We have in the past occasionally, but I thought it was significant. Erickson was very significant where the monitorship was extended, and we don't know if the fine and penalty will be changed or increased based upon their conduct during the original investigation and during the DPA, and then mobile telesystems, as you noted. Also, in the criminal prosecutions, one thing, Mike, we are seeing and we continue to see a lot of prosecutions coming out of just a handful of cases over the years. Petavesa, Vital, Odebrecht, Sergeant Marine come to mind, but also Petrobras continues to give us individual cases or individuals who have been prosecuted. Petavesa, I think we would all agree, is the company that keeps on giving. And so we may never see the end of Petavesa investigations. <laughs> that company was so corrupt. I remember at one point it cost a Rolex to get a meeting with a wow. mid-level manager. So that tells you the level of corruption. And under the Maduro administration, I don't think that has changed any. So a significant number of individual prosecutions, but as you have noted, sort of targeted or around a core number of cases, but I think we'll continue to see that. At the end, Mike, I'd like to touch on the changes to the FCPA corporate enforcement policy as expressed in the Monaco Doctrine and uh, elucidated more fully in the Monaco Memo. I think there's some important things in there for the compliance professional as well. Absolutely. There's no doubt that, you know, the change in administrations no matter what your politics are, you know, we view this as sort of a DOJ is an institution, the SEC is an institution. There's no doubt that there has been sort of a, a change in the enforcement perspective, but also, yet again, Tom, I mean, going back to years and years ago when we used to just read over these settlements and try to glean the tea leaves of where we're going, I feel like they're communicating a lot more but usually when they communicate, it means there's more work for the compliance professional. But at least you're right that we're getting some clear communications coming out. But this administration seems bent on ramping up not only FCPA enforcement, but white collar enforcement in general. What do you think in terms of the overall picture like that? That's certainly the message they have conveyed. And the reason I spent some time talking about the core number of cases which have evolved into individual prosecutions, uh, Pedavesa Vidal, 
Odebrecht, Sergeant Marine, and Petrobras is, and we're going to talk about one other that I'm going to lean on you a little bit for more expertise right. involving a former Goldman Sachs employee. And I think we should acknowledge the excellent prosecutorial skills of the Department of Justice in convicting Roger Ong earlier this year, former managing director of Goldman Sachs in the 1MDB scandal. But until we start seeing other cases, I'm not sure where we can assess the individual prosecutions. Really outside the scope of this podcast probably is a case involving two individuals, the former CEO and the general counsel, who've been criminally indicted, and they are fighting as part of their defense the internal investigation brought by this is cognizant, their former right? employer, the, the cognizant CEO, Technologies. The CEO and GC right. are about to go to trial, I think, early 2023 or something. They are, except they filed a motion to have all of the internal investigation done by the company thrown out, and their claim is basically a Fourth Amendment claim these were done at the request and or direction of the Department of Justice. They should be treated as government investigations and none of the criminal procedural protections that you would typically get in a government investigation were in place. So that's going to be a question which has troubled the federal judiciary and some other cases. Yeah. Off, break off. It's been prominent in questioning that. But if the deputization of internal investigations to outside counsel, private lawyers such as yourself or myself becomes a part of a sort of a government investigation, that's going to change the dynamics of an investigation quite a bit. So I guess it leaves me kind of up in the air about individuals. We have certainly heard that since the AIDS memo was first announced in September of 2015. And the department always says they're going after individuals. So yeah, we'll see. No, and the Cognizant case raises really difficult issues. And I think it was Judge McCann, McMahon, she's chief judge, I think, either, I think it was the Eastern District of uh, New York. And she raised real issues about, you know, the outsourcing of these investigations to big firms, firms like ourselves, you know, small firms, whatever. And that we are acting at the direction, like as agents for the prosecutors. So, I think you and I spoke about this issue five years ago and saying this is eventually going to come to the courts in a big way. And I think it is now in the cognizant case. So we got to watch that for this year. That's going to be an interesting trial. Let's turn to some of the interesting cases. I mean, we're not going to talk about every case because we don't have uh, four hours to go through all of this. But one case I know you were kind of interested in, and there actually are a lot of good lessons in this one as well, was KT Corp, which was just a settlement with the SEC, just a settlement, where they paid $6.3 million to resolve FCPA charges. This was, I think, the first case of the year for in, in the FCPA arena. But what did you think of that case, and what were some of your observations about it? I'll go ahead and plug my uh, next book, which will be coming out in, in a week or two, which is the FCPA Year in Review 2022. And I tried to name the cases I wrote about, and, and this one is bribery the old-fashioned way, cash, bags of cash. So it's good to get back to the basics sometimes, Mike. <laughs> and I think that uh, the plus professionals don't always remember that, you know, there is a pretty basic way to pay a bribe. And can be a bag of cash. It can be a shake of a hand with a $50 bill in it uh, or anything in between. And uh, KT reminds us of that. So sometimes the simple ways are the better ways. 
that was one lesson. But there were two other lessons that I thought were interesting. And and I don't know, Mike, how much your practice is international companies, meaning not U.S. domestic companies. But this is a great case for every lawyer who deals with an international company. KT Corporation is a South Korean company with, I think they were had ADRs in the United States, American Depository Registrars. Right. And they had as minimal contact with the United States as is possible. Yet they were embroiled in a major FCPA enforcement action. Now, the country of South Korea prosecuted some individuals in this case, separate and apart from the DOJ prosecution. But with really very minimal contacts, you can make your company subject to U.S. jurisdiction. And I don't think really many foreign companies, certainly unsophisticated, not multi-billion dollar companies, they don't fully appreciate that. Right. In addition to the bribery scheme where it literally was bags of cash, that was in Korea, South Korea. There was another set of bribery schemes in Vietnam. And Mike, what I thought was interesting here was you and I have talked about for years risk in joint ventures and how you need to manage those risks going forward. But joint ventures are only one form of business relationship. You can have any number of business ventures going forward. It can be a formal joint venture with a contractual agreement, but it can be a teaming agreement. Companies can come together for a bid. Companies can pair up or a part of a bid. Companies can associate informally for a full bid or a part of a bid. Now, I know you look at these issues quite often from your perspective and a competitive lawyer or in a competition part of your practice, but compliance professionals, I don't think, realize the number of business ventures that can be created, which are limited by the following, only the imagination of the business unit guys. And that's what we had in Vietnam. We had different types of business ventures, companies coming together with KT to put bids in, and one or more of the business venture partners, not joint venture partners, teaming agreements or some other business ventures, formal or informal, were involved in the bribery scheme. So it just goes to show that the compliance function needs to understand what types of arrangements your business units are getting into. And simply because they do not enter into a formal joint venture, which may have its own protocol for going through the compliance function, does not mean that there are other types of business ventures your business folks are entering into in high-risk jurisdictions. Yeah, the Vietnam story definitely underscores that. The funny part, well, funny, I mean, we've got to do this job with a sense of humor, I always say, was... The way they got the cash was that uh, two senior executives paid these huge bonuses to senior management. And then all the executives had to come back and return the cash to the executives, you know, portion of their bonus cash. And then the money was stored in the CEO's safe. I mean, talk about culture and C-suite risks. You know you're in trouble when your CEO is running the bribery scheme. And your warning in terms of contact, when you have ADRs, then you're subject to all the reporting requirements and and your internal controls. And that's what, and the investigation here went through KT's internal controls with a fine-tooth comb, particularly in Vietnam. So I thought that was really interesting. It's a really interesting case. It also reminds us of our past with gift cards and the use of gift cards to pay bribes. 
And, you know, I don't hear as much about gift cards these days, but, you know, this just goes to show you that it, we still run into that risk out there, and particularly in certain countries, gift cards may still come up. Anyway, well, let's move on to, I think, another important case, which was uh, Stericycle. And, Tom, I just wanted to point this up because I know you've written about this case and really dug into it, as, as we all do. But this was about $81 million paid out by Stericycle with a three-year deferred prosecution agreement. But I thought this was important for the year. Because this showed a different tone on one important issue, and that was the compliance monitor. And what was interesting to me is they appointed a two-year independent compliance monitor. And the reasons now, it's kind of like they raised the bar. And this is an example of what you were saying, Tom, about how they're being clear about what standards DOJ is going to apply, particularly when it comes to the compliance monitor, is here, Stericycle had enhanced its compliance program but they had not tested it and completed the testing of it to verify that it was now effective. And because of that, now the bar is you not only have to enhance your program, but now you have to test it or else, like Stericycle, because they hadn't done the testing of it, they were given a two-year compliance monitor. So that was my sort of takeaway. But what were your thoughts on the case? Because I know that you found this pretty interesting. Yeah, Mike. I did because to call Stericycle a company with a dysfunctional culture of compliance really insults companies that really do have a dysfunctional culture because <laughs> these guys were beyond the pale in terms of a culture of noncompliance throughout their Latin American business unit. They had spreadsheets where they recorded their bribe payments and estimated ROI based upon the bribe payments. That's a level of sophistication. We saw that in the sons and daughters or princeling cases, hiring cases in the Far East. But Stericycle really took it to a new level in Latin America. They had some great code words for bribery and corruption or bribery payments. In Brazil, it was little pieces of chocolate. In Argentina, it was incentive payments. And in Mexico, it was cookies. So they had some interesting code words that have now entered the lexicon as well. And the Latin American business unit was as corrupt as any other unit we have seen in multiple FCPA enforcement actions over the years, Mike, yet, and literally all the way up to the corporate office in the United States, yet the company was able to get a 25% discount uh-huh. off the bottom range of the sentencing guidelines. And that's a clear theme we have seen in multiple FCPA enforcement actions in 2022. And the department has made clear that even if you have a business unit that is based on corruption, if you extensively cooperate and thoroughly remediate, even if you don't self-disclose, you can get a big discount. And for Stericycle, this was, a, I think I estimated about a $40 million discount because of the 25% off the low end of the sentencing range. They did not self-disclose, so they didn't get credit for that. But time and time again, the DOJ has communicated that they will, and this is Rod Rosenstein, corporate enforcement policy that came out of the FCPA pilot program. You can get real credit and you will save real dollars no matter how bad it was, 
if you can turn it around. And as you noted, even with the thorough remediation the company put in place, even though they hadn't tested it and did have to pick up a monitor because of that, uh, DOJ still gave them full credit, leading to the 25% discount. So I thought the Stericycle was interesting for that. And there was one other thing, and it was the following, Mike. Near the end of the years of bribery schemes, the Stericycle Latin American Business Unit tried to stop paying bribes. And basically, the middleman said, you keep paying or we go to the DOJ. And if there's not a perfect example of once you cross that line and engage in criminal conduct, the criminals have you, this was the case. Well, that's a fact. That, that's a uh, fact I didn't know. And that's, that is amazing when you think about it. Yeah. So that message is important because even if you do want to clean up your own house, if you have it self-disclosed and uh, mm-hmm. that's threats over your head. So that's an important message. We don't talk about that enough, I think, but. It was an interesting point from the Stereocycle case. But once again, this was as corrupt a company, a culture of corruption as we have seen, maybe even more than any of the other companies in 2022 enforcement actions. Yet, once again, 25% discount off the bottom end of the sentencing guidelines. And even if the other point, and it's hard to sometimes figure it out from the calculations under the sentencing guidelines, but there's a range of fines from a low to a high. Right. And the DOJ can assess assess it in the middle. But if you get a discount, you're typically going to get a discount off the low end of that range. So it's almost a double discount. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, we haven't seen a case, which is, we'll talk about it in a little bit, where the discount was taken from the middle of the range. And that's ABB, I think. But that can have serious consequences, like you just said, in terms of you know, tens of millions of dollars in terms of the difference. So we didn't see like anybody earn a 50% discount this year. We did see obviously two declinations with good disgorgement, but it was interesting. The other point, I want to emphasize the point you made about the culture here. And I do think that DOJ in its guidance has sort of talked more openly now about culture of compliance and ethics and the importance of that in many ways, in many uh, you know areas. But in particular, I think a lot of the cases that they brought this year, they have spent more time in sort of describing an environment in which this activity occurred and misconduct occurred. And I think that they're painting with a broad brushstroke to show us what the culture was like, to have a senior executive maintaining a spreadsheet with contracts they win, bribes they pay, and just tracking everything and how that permeated every part of the office is was to me. So your comment is TheraCycle shows the culture issues. And I think that's a big deal. I think it's part of DOJ's strategy and it reflects some of their priorities these days. So, well, while we're talking about culture and defective cultures, let's go to the, the big kahuna of the year, which was... I mean, I think if there was anything that sent the message that DOJ is back, this was not going to be like the year before, was the release of the Glencore decision. I'll turn this over to you because I know you've written a lot about this and spoken a lot about it. And I would love to hear your views because this, I mean, this was the biggest case of the year in terms of DOJ's enforcement. 
you're right. This was a massive case, multiple enforcement agencies across multiple countries with multiple bribery schemes. We had our first CFTC settlement covering bribery and price and market manipulation with the DOJ. Glencore pled guilty to FCPA and price and market manipulation, parallel resolutions in the United Kingdom and in Brazil, I believe. And the total fines and penalties, a little over $1.1 million for FCPA violations, or $700 million, I should say, and then 441 for price and market manipulation leading to the $1.1 billion. Over a 10-year period, Glencore paid over $100 million to third parties, knowing that these portion of these monies would use to bribe officials in Nigeria, Cameroon, Ivory Coast, Equatorial Guinea, Brazil, Venezuela, and, of course, the DRC. They truly had a lawless culture that was committed to profit really at any cost. Multiple countries involved, as I noted, Glencore in West Africa relied on two significant third parties to pay $52 million in bribes in Nigeria. The DRC, this was around mining operations and Brazil with Petrobras and the sale of gas. So a lot to unpack here. Once again, we start with the point I ended with on the stereocycle matter, as bad as this was, and this was very, very bad, companies still got a discount. And they got a discount because of the steps that they took in terms of their cooperation once they finally got religion, and then the remedial efforts. The DOJ found the remedial efforts wanting because the company had not fully tested its compliance program, but Glencore made a lot of strides to try to improve their culture. They published their first ethics and compliance report, which really put their compliance program under the light of day, which is which is about the best thing you can have. We do have two monitors here, one for the UK subsidiary and one appointed in conjunction with the DOJ settlement. This was the first case we had for CCO certification, although it had been previously announced. So the Glencore CCO will have to certify to the effectiveness, reasonable effectiveness of the company's compliance program. So the going to leave the commodity price manipulation to you because I think that's probably more in your wheelhouse. But lots to unpack. It was a massive action, multiple years of investigation, payments to multiple countries, and as about as big a case as we've had since Goldman Sachs, Mike. Yeah, this was a huge case. And we had sort of a warning sign. I mean, we knew about this investigation, Tom. I never knew it was this big. I recall when Anthony Stimler from the UK pled guilty in the United States and was clearly cooperating and helped them to build the case. But this, I didn't realize the size and scope of this was going to put it into the billion-dollar settlement. Now, I get the $440 million was for the fraud, the commodities fraud, and that involved using, they were basically playing against benchmark prices and trying to manipulate benchmark pricing in Los Angeles and Houston for smaller commodity type of bunker oil or bunker gas that's used in the United States or used in, in ports. And it was a pretty sophisticated scheme, though, and they put a lot of work into it to manipulate the benchmark prices. So 
they paid a price for that. I also think, look here, this was not even a close call in terms of a monitorship, and we got a three-year monitor. And I think it's also important. This was, again, a chief compliance officer certification case, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But again, we're looking at a culture that was, I mean, you have to admit, reading through the facts, it just went on and on. And it was just sort of clearly people had to know about it. Clearly people were aware of the conduct. I even love the fact that in the DRC, they ended up paying bribes to a judge and a plaintiff to dismiss legal action against the company, which just shows you how they could derail so many of the institutions in the countries that they operated in. No case to me has ever matched Goldman Sachs in Malaysia, because I've always said that was the case that the FCPA was built for. That was the sort of quintessential case. But this one comes close to them in terms of reaching that point. And I think the implications for the commodity trading industry as well you know, in the energy industry is, you know, we've seen VDAL, now we have Glencore, and there's lots of risks because they're dealing with state-owned enterprises, and they're dealing in these foreign countries where, where energy products, oil, gas, whatever. So I think we're going to see more in the industry fall. It's just a question of when, but Glencore is always going to be there. Fascinating case. Well, let's turn to another case. You know, sometimes these SEC alone cases, where in the Oracle case, I think is one of the most interesting cases, but one important fact, and I don't know if you've heard anything on this any differently than I have, but Oracle settled with the SEC, but we don't know if DOJ has an investigation or if DOJ declined to prosecute. But what happened in this case, Tom, is here's our first SEC recidivist in the year, you know, for this year where Oracle, I had always found fascinating the case it had 10 years ago, and it showed to me this case 10 years ago against Oracle showed to me the power of internal controls as an enforcement mechanism. Because in 2012, Oracle paid $2 million to the SEC for creating millions of dollars in off-the-books accounts at its India subsidiary. Now, the off-the-books accounts were held by their third-party distributors. They never proved in 2012, or they didn't have evidence to prove the bribery, but they were prosecuted for internal controls deficiencies. So yet again, here we go. Ten years later, we see Oracle now paying $23 million to the SEC to resolve bribery allegations in Turkey, India, and the UAE. $8 million was in disgorgement and $15 million penalty. But to me, uh, Tom, I don't know if you've heard anything or you have any insight in terms of whether DOJ, to me, it was kind of curious because we can usually find some reference from the company like DOJ declined this or DOJ is continuing to investigate this. But I've never heard anything on this. And I wonder if you have in terms of the Oracle case, what DOJ is doing. Yeah, Mike, I have not. And that's one of the great unanswered questions from 2022. Yeah. Typically, if a company receives a declination, particularly a U.S. public company, that's deemed a material piece of information, and they will disclose that. If they get a declination, you know, perhaps with some justification that they're at least pleased with that result. We have not heard anything one way or the other. I find that very interesting as well. One of the questions Matt Kelly and I discussed for 2023 is, when, if at all, will we hear from the Department of Justice in this case? Yeah. 
This case, in many ways, was very instructive, but also very troubling, Mike. It was troubling because in the 2022 case, Oracle got involved or got into FCPA hot water over violations in the UAE, Turkey, and India. Well, in India, it was basically a very similar bribery scheme to the one from the 2011 FCPA enforcement action. So not only do you have a recidivist, got a recidivist redo, yeah. as we say in South Texas. Yeah. Redo. 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 Yeah. So and that involved distributors, once again, reminding us of some of the intricacies of internal controls, particularly around distributors. The other thing, Mike, that I just have to raise is that Oracle engaged in bribery and corruption over gifts, travel, and entertainment. Yeah. And you and I have been doing this about 20 years. About 18 years ago, the DOJ set the rules right. on gifts, travel, and entertainment. Everybody knows them. They were in two opinion releases. Everybody understands. And when you send a foreign official to visit your home office for legitimate business reasons, they got to go to the home office. Right. And here they sent business or officials, Turkish government officials to Los Angeles to visit Oracle's home office. And in one week, they were there for a, quote, 15-minute meeting, end quote. Right. To my utter chagrin, they probably took in a Dodger game. <laughs> but they, Don't they, get on they that. went to Disney World. Right. They went to Disneyland. They did lots of things that one would do in Los Angeles if one were a tourist. And they had, fam and they the had family members, Tom. How many times have we told clients, no spouse, no children, just the official themselves? And here they are, heartland of a violation. Right. So to have that kind of violation is just how that got through compliance is just beyond me. Right. But it, it gives us, Mike, a really good teachable moment or lessons learned that you and I can talk about for the next year. Guys, please look at your gift travel and entertainment policy and see if you're getting the information that how your business folks are spending travel money and per diem money and entertainment money for those you're bringing to your corporate office. But the bigger question is the one you started with, Mike, which is we have a recidivist with the same or similar conduct some 10 years later, where if at all is a DOJ on this, are they going to put something in place? Will Oracle pay a penalty for being a recidivist or is a civil action now over 10 years ago going to be relevant, even though it does have similarities to today? All open questions, in my mind, all good questions. If the DOJ declines to prosecute or something else, my request to the department and my hope from them is that they will communicate to us as well as I think they did in the ABB case, which was not a recidivist, but a three-time FCPA violator, why the fine and penalty was, I thought, as low as low as it could be. And when we get to that case, I'll talk in a little more depth, but if Oracle gets a declination, an MPA or a DPA, I just hope the DOJ explains the reasoning to us so that we can understand when they release a memo and a new doctrine that says we're going to punish recidivists and they don't punish recidivists, explain to us why you haven't done it and allow us to understand your reasoning so that we can communicate that out to the greater compliance community. Well, all good points, Tom. 
I wanted to drill down just on two issues because uh, you mentioned the gifts of travel and entertainment. I thought, and I would recommend to anybody who has, works in a compliance spot, has an anti-corruption program, and is involved with distributors, because Oracle is a really good teaching moment to everyone. Because there were two things that were done that were really interesting that the Oracle employees came up with. And one was they used a discount scheme where they would give discounts, pass discounts on to the third party, let's say, and then the third party would keep some of the discounted funds from the customer or would not pass the, the discount all the way to the customer. And this was the way that they basically were able to fund the slush funds that were then used to pay bribes. Unlike the 2012 case, um, this case, they did pay bribes and they were caught paying bribes. Now, to me, and what's also interesting is Oracle had internal controls set up for discount approvals. And what occurred was that the approval process was being sort of not complied with, with a culture of compliance sort of attitude. What happened is people would put in things like, well, we need this discount to meet competition. We need this because of this. We need this. And they also did not provide the required documentation. So if you're going to write an internal control about something and it's an important risk, make sure you follow it and adhere to it. And in this case, there were just basically false representations or inadequate justifications that were provided. And this led to slush funds in significant amounts of money that were created for purposes of paying these bribes, including the trip to the United States. One other point is this is a great example, this case, of how marketing fund allowances can be used to fund bribery. Again, at the managerial level within the local country, they were authorized under their internal controls to, to pay reimbursement for marketing expenses incurred by the distributor. And yet again, no documentation was provided. The managers were just approving it as a way to get them money. And so we had sham marketing reimbursement payments being used. So Oracle, along with Tom's point about the gifts, meals, and entertainment, these are great moments to double check your controls in the area when dealing with distributors, particularly in the software industry that relies significantly upon distributors. But anyways, I found it a fascinating case, and I think it's a great teaching moment for companies that have that set of risks. So let's go on. We, you did mention, Tom, and we'll turn this over to you again. But to me, my big question to you is this. ABB pays $315 million. In 2001, they pled guilty to bid rigging and antitrust violation in Egypt. 2004, bribery guilty plea in Nigeria under the FCPA. 2010, they get a DPA for FCPA violations in Mexico. And all of a sudden we have this case where they supposedly paid bribes in South Africa and a three-time loser, which I don't think we've ever seen before, pays $315 million. And you and I spoke right after this case came out. And the question we both asked ourselves before we even read anything, was, was this the right resolution? And we both went into it, you know, to read it and give DOJ a fair shake here in terms of what was done and did they explain their reasons for it? Was it justified? 
So where did you come out on that? And also, what did you think of the case? So, Mike, I termed the ABB FCPA enforcement action as one of the biggest wins for compliance we've had in some time. Everything you said around this case is absolutely correct. $315 million fine, $75 million going to the SEC, two subsidiaries pleading guilty, the DOJ crediting a payment of $142 million to South Africa, extraordinary cooperation, extensive remediation, a voluntary disclosure that I'll go into in some detail, coupled with three-time loser. ABB had a broken culture, and they were the first three-time FCPA violator. And ABB made the decision that we are going to change our culture. We are going to never have to go through this again, because this is not on the regulators. This is not on the Department of Justice. This is our problem, and we have to fix it. And they made clear to the Department of Justice from as early as an attempted self-disclosure that they were going to do that. And I want to go into that in a little bit of detail because the DOJ spent a lot of time talking about the putative self-disclosure. So apparently ABB calls up, and you've done this, Mike, I know, we'd like to come in and talk. And they schedule an appointment. Well, between the time of that phone call and that appointment, South African press broke the story of ABB engaging in bribery and corruption. And so the DOJ said properly, you did not meet the definition of self-disclosure. And so we cannot give you self-disclosure credit. But the DOJ was so impressed with the effort of ABB, and I don't mean Tom and Mike coming in and saying, yeah, you know, we really meant to do this. They documented that effort. We don't know what that documentation was, but the DOJ specifically said they documented how they were going to come in, what they were going to say, and how they were unaware of this press report. So I get to say document, 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 even when it comes to self-disclosure. But the point, Mike, is enough something I've heard you say over the years. The biggest thing you have when you go into the DOJ is your credibility and use that credibility to build trust. Trust that you are engaging in an investigation along the parameters that we now understand the DOJ wants. Engaged in trust that the documents are tied down. Engaged in trust when you relay a fact, that fact is correct or it's based upon the best knowledge you had at the time. And you continue to communicate with the Department of Justice. You turn over relevant documents. You report relevant findings of your investigation. and During this entire time that you're investigating, you're remediating extensively, and ABB did both. We don't know exactly the level of cooperation to the DOJ. There was one line in the SEC order that basically said ABB was turning over documents as they became aware of them. That is the hot doc we heard from Lisa Monaco, the Deputy Attorney General, and Kenneth Polite and Ms. Miller and all of their speeches around the Monaco Doctrine. If you get a document, turn it over to us. That should be your first thought and your first action. And apparently that's what happened. So we really had a level of truly extraordinary cooperation and remediation that I don't want to say impressed the Department of Justice, but built a level of trust that allowed the Department of Justice to come to some of the conclusions they had. And that's ABB. That's not the Department of Justice selling out. That's not the Department of Justice saying, well, we said we were going to be really hard on you. This is ABB 
going beyond the pale and as well in their remediation. This allowed ABB not to be required to have a monitor because they did put a new program in and they did test that program and they agreed to an extraordinary reporting protocol to the department with quarterly meetings on a three-year rolling basis of the updates to their compliance program. So ABB was able to build a level of trust. They were able to maintain that level of trust. And the one thing I want to make clear about the DOJ in this process, Mike, is they communicated all of that through the settlement documents. This wasn't Kenneth Bolid or Deputy Attorney General Monaco standing up and saying, well, here's what they did. This is in the settlement documents. And I want to acknowledge and shout out to the Department of Justice for putting that level of detail so that we could understand how starting with the question of this is a three-time FCPA violator, we have the Monaco Doctrine in front of us, please help us understand. Well, they did help us understand. And I thought they threaded a very narrow needle hole and they did it well. But ABB should also be congratulated or at least acknowledged for their role in attempting to self-disclose, in communicating on an extensively cooperating with the department on the investigation and with their remediation program. They do have to certify the CCO, Natalia Shaheda, has to certify the compliance program, but at just an extraordinary result given the facts, and we didn't even go to the facts about this bribery scheme literally went to the corporate office in Switzerland, although part of it was headquartered in South Africa. This was run out of the corporate office. So you had culture of corruption all the way to the home office. And ABB made the decision, we are going to change. And they made a decision and enacted that decision in a way that they could demonstrate and document to the Department of Justice. Well stated, Tom. We both sort of went into this with a jaded eye, but I think uh, DOJ's handling of it and ABB's response was truly extraordinary. And you can see that. So in the end, I thought it was a fair resolution. And I think that ABB, they knew once they uncovered this, that they had to do something extraordinary and their attorneys and them did. And so, you know, it's not every day that we say, oh, they did well with a $315 million settlement. That's a pretty big number. And also these reporting requirements and also being held accountable, you know, going forward with the reporting requirements. A couple of points that I just wanted to make on the facts itself. There were a couple of good reminders again, Tom, on you know some of our favorite issues. Here, I won't go into all the details, but they were dealing with the state-owned electric company, and it had to do with a contract, valuable control and instrumentation work contract. But what's the first thing that we learned early on was don't hire a third party who's recommended or at the direction of a state-owned official or executive. Well, here, the executive who was the head of ESCOM introduced a subcontractor as a friend and somebody who would be interesting for ABB to engage. And ABB hired that person, even though that person didn't have experience or qualifications. They also ended up hiring another subcontractor at the behest of ESCOM and the ESCOM official. And ultimately, the only way they could get that person through their ABB's due diligence process was to waive the due diligence requirement. 
And again, in the new ABB with a culture of compliance, neither of these situations would pass the smell test. We've always told clients, if somebody's recommended by a state-owned official, that's like the kiss of death. So those were two other important points. But all in all, Tom, I think you perfectly sort of pressed, uh, you know, answered the big question that a lot of people have been sort of debating, I think, a little bit, whether ABB in the end was a prop, really the, the right type of resolution. So we finished the year off with another big bang case, Tom. And this was the Honeywell UOP case where Honeywell ended up paying $160 million to DOJ and the SEC and $39 million to Brazil. It's interesting that we've seen so many cases where there's great cooperation. I always tell clients, if you operate in Brazil, be scared because the law enforcement relationship between DOJ and Brazil is second to none in the world, maybe equivalent of the UK. But Honeywell, in this case, got a three-year DPA, but they got no independent compliance monitor. They paid bribes to a Petrobras official, one official who had the decision-making responsibility for a large contract, $348 million contract to build a Brazil refinery. The SEC case included not only the Brazil situation, but the situation in Algeria in 2011, where bribes were paid to Sonatrac, the oil and gas state-owned company in Algeria to resolve a contract dispute. But what was interesting to me was, Tom, this underscored, you know, when you have these big projects and they're worth a lot of money, it's so valuable. Honeywell was competing against its two most major competitors and they wanted to win at any cost. And I think that culture permeated exactly how it was executed. But what were your thoughts in terms of how sort of the Honeywell case came out? Like this case, Honeywell did not self-disclose. Mm-hmm. The case came to the DOJ through UniOil. And we've talked about the two former UniOil officers who are cooperating with the Department of Justice. UniOil was only involved in Sonatrack or the Algerian bribes. So kind of speculating here, but I think Honeywell was put on notice, started to look at the Algerian operation, and then picked up what happened in Brazil. So the UniOil case continues to resonate. How long those guys are going to be turning over information may be quite a while. So if you did business with UniOil, you better be out there auditing your deals. Number one. Number two, the bribery scheme interested me, Mike, because it was a profit-sharing bribery scheme in Brazil. And the payments to the corrupt Brazilian Petrobras employee were a percentage of the overall contract. And it was capped. So you even had a little, you know, cap kicker in there. Very important to have a cap. You don't want to exceed, give too much of a percentage. But my theme for this case was profit sharing as bribery. So that, and then the troubling thing from the Honeywell perspective was as bad as this case was in terms of the business unit lying to the compliance professionals or the compliance function, there was also a complete failure of internal controls when it came to finance and accounts payable because the Brazilian intermediaries who were involved in this case, who also shared in the profits of the contract, didn't have contracts. They didn't have written contracts. And they had wires sent to different company names than their companies. And you may guess where those wires were sent. 
to offshore accounts and to Swiss bank accounts. So you had a failure of finance and accounts payable internal controls as well. So this brought Honeywell corporate, or at least not a Honeywell's European company. So brought their U.S. subsidiary in directly into the bribery scheme because of the payments. And it reminds us that internal controls are not simply due diligence distributors, et cetera. It goes down to your payments schemes and how you pay your vendors should all be a part of your internal controls. One question I had, Mike, that I don't know if you would know the answer to this. As you noted, Honeywell did not was not required to have a monitor. And here I could not discern from the corporate settlement or the resolution documents whether Honeywell had both implemented a compliance program to the satisfaction of the Department of Justice and tested it. I found no language on the testing component. No, I, I agree know, with you. Uh, yeah, no, I, agree. I didn't see that. Nope. And I looked for that as well. I didn't see either mention one way or the other. So I wondered about that. But they did talk about their enhancement of their anti-corruption program, getting rid of third-party representatives in various areas and sort of their remediation efforts. It all sounded great on paper, but I don't know if it was actually tested. So that's a good point. On the other hand, you know, I thought it was pretty good, pretty large settlement, 160 million given the conduct. But it was, you know, it was a large contract. The contract, they ended up not completing it, but still they made a, a lot of profits, illegal profits from this as well. It's an interesting case, but I think we're going to see more Honeywell's, ABB's, Stericycles. I wouldn't predict yet another Glencore, but I think we're going to see more of those coming in the next year. And I wanted to sort of switch because I know, you know, we've been on for a little bit, but I want to definitely address these issues with you, Tom, which are the changes that occurred in the DOJ corporate enforcement policy. And these are really significant in my view. We have seen yet another heightened expectation in the areas of compliance. But just to sort of set the stage a little bit, and then we can sort of chew on some of these issues, the Lisa Monaco memorandum that came out was specifically applies to all white-collar enforcement and not just FCPA. But it talked about the decline in white-collar prosecutions that has occurred over the last 10 years. The increase now, we're seeing yet another increase in FBI agents and resources dedicated to not only the FCPA, but white-collar crime, but they're also embedding agents with prosecutors in the same offices, which I think is a great idea. We're also seeing more focus on export controls and trade sanctions, given the Russia sanctions issue as well. But from the compliance perspective, I think it's beyond sort of their need to say, but yet they said it again and again, is that you will do better if you have an effective compliance program when you cross the threshold into DOJ to provide a voluntary disclosure. And I think they were trying to say, in any and every way they can, we expect you to put together an effective compliance program. We've told you how to do it. We've given you guidance. We don't want to hear financial excuses like we couldn't afford $50,000 for it or 100000 for an automated tool of some sort. You know, that's just not going to cut it. But just to remind everybody, then, this was the framework within which they started to go at this and remind everybody again 
the three elements needed are voluntary disclosure, full cooperation, timely and appropriate remediation, and then you get a presumption of declination. And like we said, you can get 25 to even 50% off even if you voluntarily disclose and you have an aggravating circumstance, which could be being a recidivist, pervasive conduct, or a large amount of bribes, or senior executives' involvement. Now, the thing that happened here, Tom, you mentioned one issue, and we, we can talk about that in a minute, but I also wanted to get your thoughts on this. To me, the big mention, the big ramp up here is that the new compliance program expectation is that now we have to have compliance focus on compensation programs. In other words, we want to reward compliance and penalize individuals who commit misconduct. If you can describe that and what you thought about DOJ's approach here, and what do you think this means for compliance programs in general going forward? Like I dub the Monaco memo and the Monaco doctrine as putting the heat on compliance. And I think you're absolutely right that the doctrine really wants compliance programs to up their game and they want corporations to fund and put resources in compliance. But let me start with uh, the investigation, because here I'm talking to people like you. You guys are under a huge increase in pressure. Certainly in-house compliance officers have a big part of investigations, starting with your hotline, starting with triage, getting it to the right person, whether it's the general counsel picking up the phone and calling you or handling it internally themselves. But it has to be done quickly. It has to be done efficiently because someone's going to have to make a decision should we self-disclose. And then if you make that decision, then someone like you is going to have to go out and get those documents like they did in ABB and make the decision when to turn them over to the Department of Justice. You counsel with your client. Do you figure out your strategy? Do you sit down and have thoughtful reflection on what it all means in the big picture, or do you turn it over? I don't pretend to know the answers to those, but I do know that's a difficult question. The department has said that is part of the equation that we will look at now in considering whether to give you full credit under the corporate enforcement policy. So a lot more pressure. The DOJ wants corporate compliance programs incentivized appropriately. And companies, I don't think, spend enough time thinking about that. How do we incentivize our compliance program, whether it's a discretionary bonus at the end of the year or by promotion or other activities? But equally, they want disincentives or punishment for those who violate internal controls, for those who violate the FCPA, for those who violate company policy and procedures. They specifically talked about clawbacks for senior executives, and the DOJ wants companies to start taking back money from executives who made money through bribery and corruption. I think a lot more pressure on compliance programs around incentives and disincentives. We haven't even got to the ephemeral messaging discussion in the Monaco memo, but more pressure on compliance programs to capture messaging, even third-party apps. How are you going to do that? And I think really the heat is on compliance. And the Department of Justice made clear you'll your compliance program will be assessed at two points. Number one, when the violation occurred. And number two, when the resolution occurs. And if you have a substandard program for some of the reasons you articulated, well, we couldn't spend $50,000, 
to upgrade our ERP system so that all of the invoices talk to each other and compliance and oversight, that's not going to cut it. Yes, you can extraordinarily upgrade those systems, but that's really not how you want to do business. Changing engines at going 40,000 miles an hour or 4,000 miles an hour at 40,000 feet in the air is not how you want to try to do this if you find yourself in the middle of it. So uh, it really puts pressure on compliance programs. It puts pressure on investigations. It puts pressure on outside counsel who are involved in investigations. It puts pressure on boards of directors to make the right decision, because if you don't self-disclose, you've thrown away a potentially an opportunity to generate goodwill and trust. You've certainly thrown away a 25% or more discount off of your fine and penalty, perhaps leading up to a, a declination. And it's going to make that decision, which I think is one of the hardest ones a corporation can make in conjunction with their counsel, even harder. So. I think there's a lot in here that puts pressure on compliance, and I think the DOJ has turned the heat up. What I find really interesting is right around the same time, the SEC came out with rules for clawbacks for senior executives from financial misreporting, and it's almost like strict liability. If there's a restatement in the SEC rules, the money gets taken back. And you have to have a process and a procedure. It took 10 years for them to implement those rules, by the way, from Dodd-Frank. They were directed 10 years ago. But here, to me, this is the equivalent for corporate compliance programs. Now, we always talk about cooperation within the organization. How about sitting down with HR and your senior executive staff and saying, okay, what kind of compensation program are we going to have? If Mike engages in misconduct, he should lose a clawback, you know, he should lose a bonus. But what if he has a deferred stock vesting program or whatever, where after certain years, I get a certain amount of vested stock? That has to be looked at. How can we create and how do we rewrite these programs now to disincentivize misconduct? And then what are we providing on the other side? What's the carrot to beyond just saying, okay, it's one element of your evaluation every year to make sure you have complied with all ethics and compliance requirements. I think this raises it to a new level. Look, we saw in one case, and you'll remember this case, Novartis in the space of two weeks settled a $750 million foreign bribery case with a $750 million domestic bribery case of AKS, you know, anti-kickback. So what did Novartis do? They said to all senior executives, None of you are going to get a bonus unless you meet these compliance requirements. And is that where we're heading? That, in other words, we're going to have to say to everybody, we've got to force you to do this or else you're going to lose all these benefits. And it seems to me like DOJ has opened the door to asking these tough questions. How far are we going to go in this area? But it seems to me like we've never really dug down, no compliance program that I've ever seen has really dug down and managed and examined all the risks that are created by incentive and disincentive programs. We have the famous case example of Wells Fargo and the, the woman who ran off with all the money from that ridiculous incentive program or sales program that required eight accounts for every one customer that we have at Wells Fargo. Well, that woman ended up making tons and tons of bonus money. They clawed back some of it, but 
under this standard now, Tom, I think DOJ is going to look at the program and say, well, not only what did you write down, but what did you take back? How did you execute this program? And I think this raises a whole new level where, and you have been a strong proponent from the beginning of that compliance needs a seat at the senior executive table. Well, now they certainly do. If we're going to have them involved in compensation systems for not only senior executives, but middle level management and how we craft these. So this is what I mean. To me, this was the game changing aspect of the Monaco memo to me. And it says to compliance, don't come in here with just your old rinky dink punishment disincentive program. We want to see something new. And we're waiting on some guidance, I think, additional guidance that the criminal division was supposed to put out. I hope we see that soon this year, but that's going to be interesting to me. We have touched on this topic. The next topic I'd like to raise, Mike, several times during this recording, and that's CCO certification. This was announced by the Department of Justice in the spring. Kenneth Polite formally or re-articulated it at Compliance Week 2022 conference. And now we have it enshrined in every settlement agreement since the Monaco memo. Kenneth Polite has said the desire or the goal of the DOJ is to empower the CCO to have the resources, both monetary and headcount, that they need. But many CCOs are worried that they will now be personally liable for certifying something if there's a compliance failure. I recognize this is going to be a very limited number of CCOs who are going to have to certify because it's CCOs whose companies have gone through a FCPA enforcement action. But this is a pretty big change. And if I'm the Glencore CCO, I'm not sure I want to have to certify. Maybe they have great confidence in their program. But, you know, it's going to be your tail on the line. You're sitting in, let's say, London as the chief compliance officer for Glencore. And now you're suddenly on the hook for the compliance program that's now operating in the DRC. And I mean, if I were advising you as your lawyer before you sign that certification, I would think you have to do a certain amount of level of due diligence. And because you could be prosecuted, I'm not saying you will be. I have the benefit of interviewing David Last at a uh, industry meeting, who's the head of the FCPA unit, and he tried to reassure everybody by saying, look, we're not out to get you. This is not a game of gotcha. But then the argument that we heard back from Kenneth Polite was, look, we're looking at this as a means to elevate your status within the organization, to elevate the status of the chief compliance officer. And I see it a little bit more as a two-edged sword. I don't see people being prosecuted very easily. I think the department knows that it would have to be a situation of really egregious conduct or misrepresentation. But nonetheless, it does put a burden and a worry on top of the compliance professional who's already has enough risks, as we know, in terms of their job. And I just wonder, is this the right mechanism to do it? But in practice, I think it's going to be a lot less significant because it only applies to these few situations. But both of us know quite well Natalia, who's now at ABB. And if I were her before she has to sign this certification at the end of the DPA, I think long and hard about it to make sure that my representation is done in good faith. We'll have to see. Well said. All right, Tom. Well, I think we've come to the end. This is 
thank you. This has been just terrific. But 2023 is going to be an interesting year. And hopefully I can get you back maybe halfway through for a mid-year review to see where we are. And we can count up the cases then and point out what we think has been interesting. A couple of things I wanted to plug for Tom as my good friend and colleague. Number one, he is now the best-selling child compliance officer, author. Tom, congratulations on your new kids book on being, and if you have it, it'd be great to see it, the chief compliance officer. There it is. Being a compliance officer is awesome by Tom Fox. I think the book is terrific. And we do look forward to your book coming out on the review of 2022. When do you expect that out, Tom? And where can people find it? Maybe we can get a link for the show notes. I'm not sure we'll have it ready by the time this pod posts, Mike, but I'll send you the link for being a compliance officer. It's awesome. That is available on Amazon. 2022, the year in FCPA, will also be available on Amazon. And in May, LexisNexis will be publishing my compliance handbook, fourth edition. So that will be out with LexisNexis. Once again, the best single author volume on design creation and implementation of a best practice compliance program. So I continue to write, continue well, to terrific. podcast and continue to hang well, out with cool people part, like glad you. I'm to be part of the Compliance Podcast Network. That's always an honor for that. And Tom, it's always great to talk with you. But congratulations, by the way, I did not know you had a new handbook coming up, but I can tell you from the past handbooks, they're invaluable, the best, and we will be promoting it on our blog And then we'll certainly get you on to talk about that when that comes out, because I think we need to catch up on that issue as well. Tom, all the best to you. Happy New Year to all our listeners. Oh, and if somebody wants to email you, Tom, besides reading all your books, they can also contact you how? So you can contact me via email, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I'm on LinkedIn, Thomas R. Fox. The Compliance Podcast Network is compliancepodcastnetwork.net. So check out all of those resources, podcasts, and blogs. I'd love to connect with you if I'm not already connected with you. And if you have any questions or want to chat, connect with me on LinkedIn or shoot me an email. Thank you, Tom. All the best, everybody. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you again. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way to support the show is by subscribing on your favorite listening platform. To learn more and connect with Michael Volkov, go to volkovlaw.com. 